Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, July 13th, 2022. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Associate editor and author of The Rise of the New Puritans, now out by it today, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And joining us today, our old friend, Commentary, Ma- Commentary Inc. board member, commentary contributor, uh, host of the Call Me Back podcast, author of Startup Nation, Dan Senor. Hi, Dan. Hey, John. How are you? So uh, Dan uh, agreed to join us to talk about uh, Joe Biden's trip in the Mideast. But uh, we got to start with the absolutely startling inflation numbers that came out just about an hour before we started taping. Um, At an annualized rate, if you just took the June numbers and annualized them, the inflation rate is 17.1% in the United States. Now, uh, it's actually running annualized given everything that's happened this year at uh, 9.1%. But um, Dan, I was looking back at uh, Paul Volcker uh, who came in as the Fed chairman in late 1979, and what the, he famously did to combat inflation was to raise the interest rate, the, the Fed rate, to unimaginable levels. Like at one point, it was at 20 percent uh, to to the, the Fed rate. Um, what I was struck by was the number of times that Volcker. Uh, known as this, you know, rock ribbed, you know, sort of conservative, cautious, whatever. He was raising rates by 250 basis points, like uh, basically, uh, you know, two and a half percent at a jump once 500 basis points. Right now, we are in a position in which Jay Powell, the current head of the Fed, has, I think, twice or maybe three times raised the rate by 75 basis points or 0.75%. Three three times this year. Three times this year. And clearly, it is insufficient. So my question is, if Powell looks at history, could we see at the next, which I think is next week, the next Fed meeting? I, I don't know if he just, I mean, if he just sort of does what he's been doing and, you know, applies the same dose of medicine that he's been applying, it's like, you've got like tuberculosis and you're getting Advil. Could we see Powell sort of break through and say, okay, you know what? I'm sorry. It's pain time. I know it's bad, but we're already, everybody is now looking at this and saying there's going to be an inflation, a, a, a recession this year. Bank of America today said there's going to be a mild recession this year, which is a sort of, you know, interesting way to put it. Do you could we see Powell going, OK, it's you know, we're 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 getting out the Cipro like you're we're, you're going to be sick as a dog, but we have to cure this. Well, th- th- under your scenario, that means he goes higher than the 75 basis point yeah. increase that's expected, yeah. which is already, by the way, what he's done so far, as, assuming they they proceed with another 75 basis high, 75 basis point hike is still very aggressive. So so everyone's expecting already an aggressive track. And you're asking, can he even go more aggressive than that? And I, I, I think the um, I mean, he, he should 
I don't think I don't think that's likely in this next Fed meeting. But the question is, will in a subsequent Fed meeting this year, they kind of do something along the lines um, that you're suggesting? I think it's it's certainly necessary and, and, and very likely. I'd make a couple of points. One, what's different now from the pre Volcker period is we. And as John, you and I have discussed on and off, we have been living for the last 10 plus years the post-global financial crisis, we have been living with the measures that were put in place and that were never lifted following the global financial crisis, 2008, 2009. So all these emergency measures, you know, quantitative easing, all, all, all the Fed, the monetary stimulus, those were all put in place and they were never lifted. You, you, you call in 2018, there was an effort to kind of tighten things up just a little bit. We're just going to test it a little bit. And global markets drop, crashed by like 20%. And the Fed said, okay, we're done. We're done testing. We're done testing. We won't test anymore. Sorry, sorry. And they went back to this incredibly stimulative um, uh, approach to, to Fed policy. So, so I know these increases sound like not a lot, uh, and they're not certainly relative to Volcker, but they, they are aggressive relative to what we've been experiencing the last decade right. plus. So right. it, but ahead. we've got this year, it's 2022. Yeah. We have an inflationary spiral. I'm struck not because I knew, because I came to say, oh, you know, Volcker, I just went back and looked because I was like, my God, you know, I know interest rates got to 20% in a relatively yeah. short amount of time. How did that happen? And I mean, I mean, literally 5%, 500 basis points in one move at one point when the inflation and unemployment rates were in tandem going, you know, that's amazing. Like, and, and I'm just thinking, okay, here we have this one record we have of the federal reserve killing off an inflationary spiral. And it involved aggressive measures that today seem totally unthinkable. But should they be unthinkable? I don't know. I'm not a. Yeah. I'm not an economist. No, no, no. I'm they certainly should not be unthinkable. I've just, I've just, you know, based on the, based on Powell and the Fed's, you know, pattern thus far, I think um, I'd be surprised. But it should not be unthinkable. I had Mohammed. I just recorded uh, Mohammed El Arian, who uh, the Mac for the Call Me Back podcast. This will be Friday. Yeah, it'll come out your, actually, your because of the inflation. One. Because of the inflation yeah. news, we're going to release fantastic. It who Mohammed is. Yeah, yeah, he's fantastic. Yeah, he's terrific. So I recorded him again um, and we'll, we'll release it, uh, I guess, Thursday because of the inflation news today. But he makes the point. He made two points that I think are important that are relevant to this. One, th- the most dangerous situation we're in right now is the Fed is hiking into an economic slowdown. So the Fed is following the markets rather than the other way around. The best situation to be in is the Fed sensing pro- problems ahead and kind of leading the markets into Fed policy rather than the Fed scrambling and just trying to keep up with the markets. Uh, and, and so he, he made the point that, you know, there's two ways to deal with with uh, gradually increasing inflation. One is just trying to keep tapping the brakes, not slamming the brakes, tapping the brakes. That was what they tried to do in 2018, a little tap of the brakes. And, and then they said, OK, we won't do that again. Um, so tap brakes, tap brakes, tap brakes. The worst thing you can do is slam on the brakes. Ah. And he believes now they have no choice but to slam on the brakes because they haven't been 
over the last couple of years tapping on the brakes. And so now they're going to have no choice to do a version of what you're saying. It's just I just don't think that'll happen in the next Fed meeting. I think that 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 truly would be a shock to the system. Uh, secondly, the Fed has, in his in Mohammed's view, has so gotten has so lost its credibility. No one believes a thing the Fed says. The markets don't believe what the Fed say. Consumers don't uh, believe that what the Fed says. And what it means for consumers is. Your your what you spend as a consumer is driven partly by how much money you you have, your actual income. And then it's also what you think you will have. And if people are starting to get panicked, not only about what I have now, but what I think I'm going to have going forward. And I can't believe a word that comes out of the Fed's mouth when they come out with their projections. He thinks that he argues in the in our conversation. This is a very dangerous dynamic, the Fed losing credibility. And the Fed has never explained why it has gotten things so wrong for six months six months ago they were talking about transitory inflation they have never really explained that their whole transitory uh, inflation story was completely wrong and why it was so wrong and he points out the ecb the european central bank has actually apologized they said we were getting this wrong and here's why we got it wrong and here's how we got it wrong and here's how we're going to fix it this Fed has not done that yet. So the combination of the need to slam the brakes, which will potentially, you know, could contribute to throwing us into full re recession uh, and the Fed, no one, no one believing what the Fed has to say is a pretty toxic combination. Um, it's interesting because you're talking about what consumers think or feel or think about what's going on or investors, whatever. Um, the number that is the most important political number here, and Abe and Noah, you should jump in here, is not the inflation number or the da, da, da. like real hourly wages, that is hourly wages as, as, as filtered through inflation, how much your dollar is worth compared to what it was worth before because of inflation. They have fallen 3.1% in the past year. That must totally offset any wage gains that have been made because of the tight labor market and probably outdistance them. So people are actually poorer in real terms than they were last year. That is why Joe Biden is at 33% in the New York Times poll. That is why things are going the way they're going. That is why in the New York Times poll, they asked a question, open-ended, they said, what's the problem you're most concerned about? And did not offer, you know, six or seven things in a list. They just asked people. 35% of them said inflation. That is an astounding number. If you actually think about that, that, that people volunteered inflation. This is hurting everybody. More importantly, it's hurting people at the lower end of the scale, which is where Democrats need to bring back voters because they already have by a margin of 30 points, something like that, college educated voters who are presumably, uh, you know, college degree people who are presumably at a wage level that kind of can balance out some of this trouble as opposed to people who are really living paycheck to paycheck or week to week. So these numbers are, are you know, are, are terrible in the macroeconomic sense. They're also terrible at the day-to-day person-by-person sense, and we're getting this record like people are poorer than they and, were. 
And, you know, in response, so the Biden is fumbling and disseminating, which I think ties into Dan's point about uh, trust in the Fed. I think it's very easy for average Americans to, um, you know, we talk a lot about the mistrusting uh, institutions uh, on this podcast. It's very easy to to collapse the 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 distrust that that Biden has earned um, uh, here uh, among Americans who are going through this and just absolutely make that of a piece with the Fed, too, and just say, look, this whoever whoever's hands we are in right now, they are not doing anything for us. And I don't believe a word they're saying. Now, the White House's response to CPI this morning is the worst possible response you can imagine. They're arguing that this is all in your head. This isn't really happening. Literally. Quote, today's data does not reflect the full impact of nearly 30 days of decreases in gas prices that have reduced the price at the pump by about 40 cents since mid-June. Those savings are providing important breathing room for American families and other commodities like wheat have fallen sharply since this report. Um, this report suggests in, indicates the gas is up 60%, utilities are up 38%, electricity 14%, groceries 12%, shelter 6%, clothing 5%. And the idea that you can argue, you can Jedi mind trick voters out of their, the, their acute understanding of their reduced purchasing power isn't just callous and cynical, but utterly reckless. But Dan, uh, a reckless also, stewardship yeah. of your trust, uh, the trust that you know, Americans need to have in their institutions. But Dan, like they're whistling past the graveyard here because Noah may, you know, they're making the point that, um, you know, we uh, this drop in, in gas prices, uh, you know, the 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 big number, the one point three percent in June, which is the 17 percent annualized rate, doesn't take into account the decline in gas prices. But Jason Furman who is the head of Obama's Council of Economic Advisors, Jason Furman tweets this, another brutal CPI report. Headline CPI was 1.3%, 17.1% annual rate, but that's outdated given recent gasoline declines. What was brutal, says Jason Furman, this is not Newt Gingrich. No, so not- for, for the listeners, Jason Furman was a, the chairman of Obama's Council of Economic right. Advisors. He was the Ob- Obama's top economist. Yeah. So he says was core CPI rose to 0.7 percent. That's an 8 percent, 8.8 percent annual rate. So core CPI is inflation excluding food and energy. So when he says two very inelastic don't even, goods, right? No, but he says, don't even worry about don't even think about the gas prices it's bad enough. It's way worse than you think. We're at nine percent exclusive of gas and energy. And of course, gas and energy are the largest single payments aside from, you know, like mortgages that people have in the course of a month. Grocery yeah. store bills and filling your gas tank. We should I add that gas just, averages so, presently yeah. still averages 450 a gallon in this country, as though that's, yeah. you know, that's still crushingly high. So I'll tell you, Mark Melman, the Democratic pollster, uh, who you many of your listeners may be familiar, one of the most prominent Democratic pollsters for the last few decades, does polling for the Democratic leadership. 
Uh, he has this very great formulation. I'm just thinking about what what Noah just said in terms of the White House's statement this morning, basically telling you, like, don't don't believe your lying eyes. Basically, he, he has this great formulation where he says the worst advice uh, that could be given to a politician running for office when things are going badly for that politician's constituents is to tell the polit to have the politician tell the constituents that the constituents are wrong about what they're experiencing. Right. It's one thing to explain it. it, it it's going to get better or here's how I'm going to get you out of this. But the worst thing to say is that it's not as bad as you are experiencing. And the analogy he gave is he says it's like it's like going to see the doctor because you've like hurt your shoulder and you go to see your doctor and you're like, look, I'm in enormous pain. My shoulder, something's wrong. I dislocated it. What can I do? And the doctor says, no, you're wrong. Your shoulder's fine. And you're like, no, 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 I'm not here to debate whether or not my shoulder's fine. I'm in enormous pain. I'm here to work with you on how I actually fix my shoulder. And the doctor keeps saying, no, 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 no. But I'm telling you, you're not experiencing pain. And, and that is exactly what the White House is doing in the statement that Noah just quoted. It's like, you're, you're, no, no, you're not in pain. Your shoulder's OK. You just don't understand it. And, that, mean, that's, and then and the, other, the only other point I'd yeah. say is I am struck. And this is anecdotal. But, you know, Kevin McCarthy uh, said to me, I don't know, three, four months ago that he that's advises the, all. That's the House minority leader, the, yeah, the Republican leader, the Republicans in the House. Right. So he he said when he's talking to his candidates who are running, he says he said just he would tell them basically to just talk about, you know, gas and groceries, gas prices and groceries. Don't get technical. It's not, you know, like actually voters don't don't. Like the word inflation does not resonate with voters. What resonates with voters are gas prices are high. Groceries are high. Just talk about like brass tech. I'm not sure he's right. He may be right. Obviously, he's 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 a seasoned uh, he's 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 a very effective uh, campaigner. So so he's certainly got more experience than me. But I'm just struck anecdotally when I talk to people. I think people who don't spend their days consuming news the way, you know, the four of us do are far more tuned in to what is going on at a technical level than one would expect. And the two examples I will give you in the last 24 hours. Yesterday, I'm at Starbucks. I'm buying a coffee. The, the, I order a medium grande for you Starbucks fans, a grande coffee. And the, the barista gives it to me in a venti cup, which is the extra large cup. And I said, no, 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 no. I ordered a grande. And she says to me, oh, we're out of grande cups, so I'm just giving it to an eventi, it, an eventi cup. She pauses, and then she throws her hands up and says, supply chains. You know, she says that, okay. Then today I'm at the dry cleaners. This is, an unbe this is unbelievable to me. The dry cleaners says he cannot do my, you know, dry clean my clothes because the machines have broken down. They're missing a part. He can't get the part sent to him. And he can't even get a, 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 a technical person to come fix the, the equipment until late July. So his now dry cleaner on the Upper West Side of Manhattan is completely dormant. And, he, and I was in there and I was watching customers walk in, dropping off the stuff. And he's saying, sorry, can't clean your clothes. Can't clean your clothes. Turning away business. By the way, you know what happens. Those people then go find another dry cleaner. And that could yeah, be a permanent yeah. decision they make. And. And he's I'm just watching this guy's business completely fall apart, like before my eyes. He's just turning customers away and sending them to his competition. And I said to him, like, well, what how does what happens here? Like, why can't you get the technic the 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 repair person to come? He's like, labor market, tight labor market. The guy's overwhelmed. 
I can't get them to come. So the fact that like the coffee shop is talking, a person is talking about supply chains, the dry cleaners is, is, is citing and analyzing the, the state of the labor market tells me that people are more tuned into what's going on than I think we fully appreciate. And, and I, and I, and so that contributes to the, the breakdown in confidence in institutions that Abe was talking to, because people are not just like breezily kind of observing the, these events. They are, they are following it very closely. And, and I, they're, I'm, and they're suffering as your, as your story makes two stories make plain. I mean, I, I think of what you just recounted is actually quite scary um, because it's happening everywhere uh, in, in all sorts of businesses and services. And um, people sense the sort of the wheels coming to they a sense halt. It. They sense it. And the, and the conventional wisdom is ahead of expert opinion. If we end up being in a recession right now in a recession uh, for the last several months, um, it will have outpaced uh, the sense of it will have outpaced expert expectations, which for the last, I don't know how many months have suggested that we were looking at inset- uh, recessionary trade uh, trends rather in 2023. Um, but everybody could feel your reduced purchasing power, reduced economic activity, even if hiring has increased, the wages are not keeping pace with it. So there was kind of a sentiment, an incohate sentiment that economic activity was declining, uh, regardless of what the expert class told itself. Uh, but that I think there's a reason. Yeah, because I, I don't get a, it. I think there's a reason that the expert class uh, doesn't have the feel that it might have had 40 years ago, which is to say there is now an entire class of very well-to-do people in the United States who... Um, whose wealth does not depend on, I mean, it does ultimately, but not in, in, in any direct sense on the well-being of business. Whereas 40 years ago, most money was made by for-profit, you know, the, the world of people who now make money consulting, uh, you know. They're not wage earners. They're not wage earners, nor are they, the bosses of wage earners, let's put it that way. They're not, they, they aren't in a chain of people whose relation to the economy is based on what is happening on a day-to-day basis with people who are buying and selling and doing things. There's a whole separate category in the elite that is much larger than it was 40 years ago. And so 40 years ago, there was no mistaking the problem. Also, things were much worse. I mean, we were, we really were, we had, we had an unemployment rate at, you know, uh, well over 10 or 11%. Uh, we're at 3.6% now. So we're talking about a different set of conditions altogether. But I do think that the world of commentary, the commentariat is somewhat insulated from these conditions. And so it doesn't feel them in the same way and it doesn't panic. Um, Powell Jay Powell, the head of the Fed, said this bizarre thing that, like, I think he should resign over. I mean, it's like if he thinks this, then he shouldn't be the head of the Fed. He said he said this in Spain the other week. I think we now understand better how little we understand about inflation. Dan, if the head of the Fed doesn't understand inflation, should he be the head of the Fed? I can't believe it's like. I'm okay. surprised more Republicans didn't vote against his confirmation when he was uh, before the Hill for for his renomination to the Fed. Um, I, I 
yeah, I think he should have been um, <laughs> his 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 disconnectedness should have been more of a front and center issue uh, among folks on the Hill. Uh, the, the other the I mean, I other, the, Noah read that quote from the White House. The other question is, at some point, the White House going to be pressured to acknowledge that we're not in this mess because of Russia, Ukraine. Uh, which Biden keeps talking about. Sort of. I mean, you, you saw the, uh, a complimentary statement to, to that one um, where the president said he's going to pressure Congress to do whatever they can to lower consumer costs, specifically prescription drug, drug prices, health insurance premiums, and uh, uh, something else, just a general cost of living thing that has absolutely nothing to do with the cost of living, uh, which, uh, you know, is stimulative, right? I mean, we're talking about throwing money into the into right. the till here that is part of the problem there's too much money chasing after too few goods which is inflation if i can wrap my hands around inflation certainly jay powell probably should i just don't understand how you can say something like that as as as, as a as a you know as though health as insurance country's national bank like it doesn't right. <laughs> what does he mean we all understand why why inflation is happening like this i mean it it solving it means and it's the same problem which is like what 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 he has to it's not that he doesn't understand what is going to have to happen right i mean we uh, dan we have friend we know Pete, and it's like things oh, are going to oh, oh, get i'm ugly. sorry the worst possible okay. thing i'm sorry yeah. i'm interrupting okay. the worst possible yeah. thing that he could say the, the quote is the following Biden reacts to CPI. I urge Congress to act this month on legislation to reduce the cost of everyday expenses that are hitting American families from prescription drugs to utility bills to health insurance premiums and to make more in America. Uh, in other words, to uh, to rely on American labor, which is more expensive than foreign labor, which means more expensive domestically produced goods. Um, that's the opposite of the answer to this problem. And also they have to back away from the, the Putin-Russia thing because now they're relying on declining energy costs, declining fuel costs, which punches a hole right through the center of the idea that energy costs are the primary driver of inflation and that's the responsibility of uh, the Kremlin. And also, I, yeah, it, just I mean, this, this is a point that Matt Continetti made on the on the podcast a few, few days ago. Um, the more Biden talks this up as uh, Putin's fault, um, the more the country is going to turn on this on the effort over there, um, especially at a time when when Ukraine is facing some 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 redoubled challenges. Not just the country, by the way, White House aides, unnamed White House aides, according to something I read this morning, are really panicked over how things are going in Ukraine because it's going to keep get you know like they they don't they're turning on the effort because they're the political arm and they're seeing this and they're they they want it done so there's going to be internal pressure at the white house fights over all right enough oh you're so wonderful look you're you're defending freedom screw that like we're about to lose 60 seats in the house and 10 seats in the senate i'm just making those numbers up but i'm just saying like this is not just a fear that you have. It is a real time thing going on right now inside the West Wing. I mean, I don't know who are the White House aides who are saying we got to stop this now to save ourselves. But um, Dan, just to conclude on this note, Powell knows what needs to be. I mean, it's like it, it's not rocket science. So it needs to be done. The economy is overheated. And we are, you know, things are going crazy. And so 
belts, you know, there is going to be pain. There is going to be a lot of pain. There's already a different kind of pain, this kind of like corroding value pain or anxiety that is caused by this. And then there's going to be real pain. And he's, when he says, we don't know what to do, that's nonsense. He knows what to do. He's too scared to do it. And maybe he's also very unsure that he knows how much this is the Alarian point, right? He is, he would like to tap on the brakes now, but too it's too late. Right. He should have been but tapping how, on the brakes six, 12 months you, ago. Do you slam on the brakes like the car is five feet from you? Or do you slam on the brakes like it's 20 feet from you? And that's what he doesn't know, right? Right. So, look, obviously, I'm not in the man's head. Yeah. Uh, although I did work with him in the early 2000s at the Carlisle Group when we, when he and I were oh. both in the private equity business. Uh, I I went off mucking around in business and, and <laughs> politics. He took over the Federal Reserve. So his trajectory was much different from mine. But uh, so I'm not Sounds in his like head. you got the better of it right now. <laughs> I know him. I like him personally, but I, uh-huh. but I, I, I don't know what's in his head. Um, I think, uh, look, there's no doubt that he and the people around him know they have to do more. They already think they're doing a lot. Uh, and they must know that whatever they're doing and have kind of signaled that they're going to be doing, i.e. this next 75 basis point increase, um, is insufficient. So I I can't imagine that they're not going to get into the uh, brake slamming mode. It's just a matter of when and and what the the balance of equities are when they make, you know, in terms of making that decision. Okay, we've conditioned the market that we are in the next Fed meeting going to announce a 75 basis point increase. Okay, so it would probably be too jarring to do a multiple of that in the next Fed meeting, but we can do it in the one after that or two after that. By the way, I don't know how, I mean, I'm just thinking, yeah. he may be thinking, okay, I got to slam on the brakes, but it's 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 too much to slam on them right now. So to your analogy, I'll do it at 20 feet versus five feet. I mean, I, you know, I don't, I don't know when he's going to do it. I just can't imagine, we've already had three increases in 2022. I can't imagine that we are not going to see more action from the Fed this year uh, at levels we in incremental levels we haven't seen so far. I, I think that's a, a reasonably safe bet. I mean, it's the rational thing to do at this point. It's a okay, rational you know, the thing other, to do. The other rational thing to do would be for Jay Powell to get himself a copy of David Bunsen's book. There's no free lunch, 250 economic truths. If he doesn't understand how little he knows about inflation, maybe he could get a little breather, a little uh, a little uh, refresher course. Uh, with David's book, which is an uh, an introduction, a primer, a daily devotional dedicated to the idea of the free market, human flourishing, human dignity, liberty, and faith. Uh, it is uh, David runs an investment fund with three and a half billion dollars under management, so he knows her. If he speaks, people give him his money, giving their money to ensure their future, and he wants to bring that wisdom to bear to help you understand this incredibly and unprecedented situation that we find ourselves in. That's David Bonson's book. There's no free lunch, 250 economic truths. That's B-A-H-N-S-E-N. Get it at Barnes and Noble, Amazon, wherever you get your books today. And let's also talk about Bambi because, you know, when running a business, HR issues can kill you. Wrongful termination suits, minimum wage requirements, labor regulations, and HR managers are salaries aren't cheap. $70,000 a year, an average So Bambi, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E, was created specifically for small business. 
You can get a dedicated HR manager, craft HR policy, and maintain your compliance all for just $99 a month. That dedicated HR manager is available by phone, email, or real-time chat. From onboarding to terminations, they customize your policies to fit your business and help you manage your employees day-to-day, all for just $99 a month. Month-to-month, no hidden fees. Cancel anytime. So go to Bambi.com slash commentary right now to schedule your free HR audit. That's B-A-M-B-E-E dot com slash commentary, spelled BAM to the B-E-E dot com slash commentary. Dan, let us now turn to the reason you came on the podcast in the first place. Wait, before is, we do that, I got to yes. say your your transition okay. from from what Jay Powell needs to do to reading David Bonson's book, the ad read was seamless. I mean, thank I, you. I was I was bracing for you to say that maybe Jay Powell can get in a better frame of mind if you were sitting in the X chair. Right. But if that, while he was sitting at the Fed meeting, you were seeing the X chair and that that could be like your transition. That's tomorrow. <laughs> Okay, good. All right. So I'll, I'll try right. that. I'll try that tomorrow. Thank you very much. And now let's talk about Joe Biden in the Middle East. This is a yeah. very interesting thing. I want to start with just one thing, which is that Biden uh, let it be known on Monday or Sunday or something like that, that because of COVID, because of his fears about COVID, he wasn't going to be shaking anybody's hand. This may be the single greatest piece of diplomacy that he is he will ever pull off and maybe a guide to the future which is people should say i'm sick i can't shake your head therefore you don't have to raise questions about whether or not he's shaking mbs's hand in saudi arabia he's shaking abbas's hand if he meets abbas in ramallah if that's going to happen i don't know what whatever he is not he doesn't have to there don't have to be pictures of him shaking the hands of people that he would prefer not to have record of him You know, he doesn't have to. Maybe that also means he doesn't have to put his hand on the orb in Saudi Arabia. I don't know. But so he is not going to shake anybody's hand. However, he did when he got off the plane in Israel, make a pretty startlingly pro-Zionist statement. He said, you know, you don't have to be Jewish to be a Zionist. Uh, The relate the friendship and the relations of comedy between Israel and the United States are bone deep. I mean, it's I'm very heartened to hear that. Uh, I like hearing it. It's always good to hear it, particularly from somebody who worked in the Obama administration. Um, but let's uh, what's going on. Why is he there? Well, there's actually no reason for him to be there. So let's start with that. I mean, I'm very moved by his statement about Israel. I, I let, let, let's say um, I, I disagree with a lot of his policies on the Middle East, but he, he is not. Um, I don't think he has this this bone deep, to use his term, this bone deep hostility to Israel that um, the, the last Democratic uh, administration, the Obama administration, uh, had. So I, I, I think he's genuine when he says those things. Um, but that said, there's no point for him to be in Israel. This is a trip that's only about Saudi Arabia, and it's only about repairing relations with Saudi Arabia, and it's only about uh, uh acknowledging what we all know, which is Mohammed bin Salman will probably be running Saudi Arabia if he lives to his mid to late 80s for the next 50 years, either informally or formally, right now informally, very soon formally. Uh, and the administration, this the Biden administration has to deal with him. And this whole idea that he was a pariah and Saudi Arabia is a pariah and we're going to we're going to, uh, you know, take all these actions to to isolate uh, Saudi Arabia, which the administration you know, kicked off their uh, Middle East policy with um, were were naive. And um, and so they need to they need to kind of re reorganize their relationship with Saudi Arabia. That's what this trip is about. However, as the Obama administration learned, 
you cannot go to the Middle East for the first time. The president cannot go to the Middle East for the first time and not go to Israel. Right. You remember in 2009, President Obama went to the Middle East and he went to Saudi Arabia, he went to Egypt, he went to Jordan, he went everywhere, it seemed, uh, except Israel. And there was huge blowback. And I think that kicked off what was already a very kick, made cool what was already a cool relationship between the new administration in 2009 and the Israeli government. So Biden, the team around Biden said, look, we have to go to Saudi Arabia. And if we're going to go to Saudi Arabia, we got to go to Israel. I think they're, by the way, smart to have gone to Israel first and then go to Saudi Arabia uh, rather than the other way around, which remember Trump went to Saudi Arabia first and then went to Israel. Um, but they so so they have to go to Israel. But I actually there are small things that could go well on this Israel trip, which we can talk about. And I and I think will actually go well. There are small things that could go badly on this trip, which I don't think will happen, actually. So I think this trip is a net positive for the U.S.-Israel relationship. Uh, but it is also a kind of pointless trip because Biden has to be there because it's a trip to Saudi Arabia. See, I want to say, thank God it's a pointless trip, because what is usually the point of a Democratic American president going to Israel? It is, it is to do what is entirely absent from this trip, which is, a, which is to impose a top, some new top-down peace plan scheme, right? And, and the fact that that is not in the mix here at all is, I think, a shocking and heartening um, indication that what we've, people like us have been saying for years, that, 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 that that's a dead end, um, that, that, this administration has been forced to recognize a new reality in the, in the region. It is. I think, uh, you know, when you have these epical changes uh, in, in the way the world works or functions, sometimes once they happen, um, it becomes so common. So it becomes so uh, uncomplicated that you, you don't notice the change. The fact that not a word has been said about the two-state solution, the peace process, in the run-up to this trip is an indication of a 50-year, almost 50-year change in the way the United States is relating to Israel, the West Bank, Gaza, Sinai. That was the issue. It is no longer an issue. I mean, it's a mild, it's a minor issue and questions about who, what bullet shot the Palestinian American journalist. Did it come from who's Oh, gun? but that proves the rule. The, the, right. These episodes prove that it was just about a year ago that there was a flare up in Jerusalem over a property dispute that was ongoing in the courts. And it resulted in a spate of violence in uh, on the Temple Mount. And there was this, cascade of sneering wish casting takes about how oh i thought jared kushner had solved the middle east crisis oh you know I, I i thought the abraham accords had made all of this irrelevant and they had because in retrospect nobody even remembers that episode of violence it certainly didn't have any geopolitical implications not in the region and not globally uh it is it was just an it was it was an event that proved the rule the new rule being that there, it was always a conceit to believe that the Arab street moved uh, with the, whatever was happening in Ramallah or whatever was happening in Gaza City. And it's, it's just been acknowledged now 
in a way that it can't be unacknowledged. Nobody's even pretending as though that is the central, uh, you know, uh, focal point uh, for Middle East uh, relations, Middle East uh, uh, stability. Yeah. Dan, oh, yeah. And I would just say, you know, for the first 72 years of Israel's history, they they accomplished the Israelis accomplished two peace agreements with the Arab world, with the Arab countries, with Egypt and Jordan, two peace agreements in 72 years. And then in the summer of 2020, they got four agreements with four countries. I mean, it went, it's, it's like, talk about fact, you know, so these things just happen so quickly. And, and all of a sudden we're in a world in which do I want to say the Arab Israeli conflict is over? No, but it's, it's getting close to over, right? I mean, there'll be some, I think there'll be some normalization steps announced between Israel and Saudi Arabia on this trip. And, but once you're on a path to normalization with Saudi Arabia, it really is over. And because there's, if Saudi Arabia norm, normalizes with, with Israel, like who's left? And, yeah. and I, so it just happened, all of this happened so fast that it, it's hard to take a step back and say, this was not normal for a long time. And it just changed like, like like that and i think well, the so sunni states the, the sunni right, states the right. sunni kingdoms and you know well minus how many, Iranian how many, proxies yeah how many shiite states are there after all when you get right, right down to right. it um so I, I i am i'm fascinated because you you mentioned this that like you know there's going to be the normal they're we're moving toward normalization but of course oddly enough the entire sea change that began really around 2011 something like that uh happened because the Saudis were quiet, had quietly made this de- revolutionary determination in their heads that they and Israel had this common enemy in Iran and that, and that the hostilities between them were marring their ability, the Saudi ability to, co- to, to um, counter Iran's growing strength and influence and the fear that they, the existential fear that they shared with Israel of Iran with a nuclear weapon. So in an odd way, the Saudis started this. They're going to be the last one, maybe not the last, but close to the last one to formally. Yeah, but but keep in mind, all, yeah. everything that happened with the uh, the Emiratis and the Bahrainis would not have happened without right. Saudi blessing, encouraging, nudging. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So the Saudis want there to be sort of like this world of Israeli Arab uh, entente in which they can enter at the last minute, let's say, mm-hmm. having started the boulder rolling down the hill. I mean, that's the interesting aspect uh, aspect of this. And it is the most revolutionary change aside from the fall of the Berlin Wall in my I think in my lifetime. Uh, yeah. That, so that, you, so you, I've, I, you know, we've talked about this. You did, didn't you do your college thesis on Saudi? I did. I right. did on U.S. Saudi relations. That was in 1982. I wrote it under Dan, Dan, Dan Pipes was my was my thesis advisor. Right. And and the whole notion, that, you know, we would be here now. I mean, yeah. granted, it's 40 years ago. 40 years is a long time. No, no. But I'll do you one. So so, right. I, so in the 1990s, I was working on Capitol Hill. I was working on on foreign policy issues on Capitol Hill, uh, and Saudi Arabia was talked about among those who were working on the U.S. as a relationship, the way we talk about Iran now. Yeah. I mean, really, not, not that the U.S. was going to, you know, there was a snare where the U.S. or Israel would go to war with Saudi Arabia, but they but they they played that kind of destructive force in the region and towards Israel and against U.S. strategic interests yeah. they the were way the Iran does. And the idea that that was the 90s, 
even the early 2000s, even the I mean, here we are 20 years later and we're talking about them the way we talked about Anwar Sadat is unbelievable. I mean, they were the funders of the madrasas that were, you know, that that led to nine that led to the revolutionary radical, you know, irredentist millenarian Islam that struck us on 9-11 and all of that. That's who the Saudis were. And yeah, but I mean, again, on the one hand, 20 years, 40 years is a long time. And on the other hand, it really isn't like this. Right. This was not predictable. And two, there it is. It is the work of two people, um, I would say, or, you know, one being uh, Ayatollah Khamenei and the other being Barack Obama, because yeah, yeah. it was Barack Obama's clear made it clear at some point in the early 2010s to the Saudis that he was tilting toward Iran, that he wanted some grand entente with Iran. And then there was, there were the Saudis saying, uh-oh. Yeah. Well, uh, I think there's someone uh-oh. else. I think there's someone else who gets a lot of credit uh, yeah. is, is Benjamin Netanyahu. I right. think the, the speech, the address he gave before Congress in 2015 against the Iran deal uh, gave the, so there was already, a lot happening quietly between the Sunni Gulf and uh, Israel, specifically Saudi and Israel before that, as you said, going back to, to 2011, 2012. But I, I, you know, but based on conversations I've had with folks on the Israeli side and on the Sunni Gulf side, that address before Congress in 2015 put Israel on the map in, in a way that a number of these capitals, including Riyadh, said we could never do that. We could never have our leader stand before the United States Congress and and make the case against the policy of a U.S. administration. That's power that an is that a prime minister of a country could get up there and do what what Netanyahu did. And they and the Israelis, Netanyahu and the people around him say. Even they, when they decided to do the speech, didn't anticipate what followed and what followed was all the dynamics you're describing accelerating and people reaching out to the Israelis and wanting to work with the Israelis because they saw in the Israeli leadership an ability to do things in Washington and in the world that none of them could do alone or together unless they partnered with Israel. So I, so I think that that what that history will look back and as that being a kind of pretty big moment. And that's an amazing thing, because, of course, I think if you ask if you went to the Council on Foreign Relations uh, or to most you know, conventional foreign policy minds in the United States and said, was the 2015 speech that BB gave, was that a mistake or was it, you know, was it was it a you know, transformational moment in world politics? They would say, oh, it was a terrible mistake. I mean, it really was. You know, he's so alienated the Democratic Party. You know, what about Democrats? They, 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 this is one of the reasons that, you know, now only Republicans like Israel, blah, 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 blah. And um, this is a that's a really, really interesting take. So, Dan, I know you got to run. Uh, I'm so grateful that you can, can I just us. quickly yes. just tick off the, the positives that I think will come out of this trip. OK, yes, please. All right. One, I think there'll be news made on on overflight rights. So for Israel to, you know, right now, you know, you can fly between Israel and UAE and you can kind of come around Saudi. Same with like trying to fly to places like India. I think you will. I think there could be some real news on on travel overflight rights over Saudi Arabia for any airline, including El Al. 
So just think about LL flight flights yeah. flying over Saudi Arabia, very dramatic Two, uh, the direct flights between Israel and Saudi Arabia for Israeli Arabs that want to go to Mecca and Medina, uh, wow. which is that that'll be a big deal. Um, and there has been a push for it for a long time. And, and Riyadh has always been resistant. I think that that's going to, and then three, I think there will be any, some real progress on some kind of regional air defense system uh, in the central command context. So the Saudis giving early warning to the Israelis, just to put it in a practical context, wow. uh, based on uh, Iran, any Iranian air action. So th- those are those are not full normalization, but they are they are on a path towards normalization. They're a big deal. And to our earlier conversation, I think it'll be crickets on the Palestinian front. I mean, the idea that the whole totality of this trip is Biden is visiting a, a hospital in East Jerusalem, and that's considered like the, the extent there's no, has no zero policy implications. There was fear that the administration was going to try to reopen the the consulate, the U.S. consulate in Jerusalem, uh, which primarily serves Palestinians. They're not doing that. Um, you know, uh, even Tom Nides, who's uh, Biden's ambassador to Israel. I mean, he. He lives in Jerusalem. I mean, he 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 he's moved his whole world to Jerusalem. He does all his business in Jerusalem. He's they are not the administration is not moving back from the recognition in any way, even in kind of small ways of of U.S. policy towards Jerusalem as Israel's capital. And I think that the Biden administration's trip will actually reflect that reality. That's not just some holdover thing from the Trump administration, but it's actually going to be the new reality of how Biden engages in Israel and how his ambassador engages in Israel. Um, like I said, it's a pointless trip, but some of these smaller pointless points I think are still important. So I'm, I'm actually, and, and I, I think the, the, whatever Biden says about the Palestinian track will, there'll be a joint communique between him and Lapid and it will be in his voice. It won't be joint Lapid and Biden. So Biden will say some things, but it won't, they won't pressure the Israeli government to, to say them with Biden so I actually think these smaller points in the pointless trip are not totally pointless. I sound like Kamala Harris here, the way I keep using the word point. But I'm, I'm just saying, I think I think there's some positive that will come out of the trip. Well, I'm glad you didn't let me excuse you before that final peroration, which was fantastic and could have should have could have led the whole thing with it. Um, anyway, thanks so much, Dan. Uh, everybody get the Call Me Back podcast by tomorrow. Subscribe to it so you can hear Muhammad Al-Aryan. And if you subscribe to it today and any time, you can hear Dan's conversation with our own Noah Rothman about his book, The Rise of the New Puritans, which is the one that's up this week, but will also remain in the archives and is a fantastic conversation. A lot about sports, which we haven't talked about because Dan knows about sports and I've stop paying attention to sports and Abe doesn't pay attention to sports. No, it was great talking about sports. You there you go. So a lot of feedback listen, from my fellow sports Listen fans. to Dan and Noah on sports. And thanks right. a lot, Dan. Now we got to turn to the January 6th hearing uh, yesterday. Um, so uh, a lot of it was about Team Crazy, which is uh, uh, Sidney Powell, uh, Michael Flynn, and uh, the guy who used to run Overstock.com coming into the White House on December 19th and saying, uh, you need to seize, you need to have the military seize voting machines and, uh, uh, you know, basically declare martial law or something. I don't know. Sidney uh, Powell becoming special uh, counsel to arrest people for having um, uh, mucked around with, uh, with, the, uh, with the election. 
uh, something that uh, uh, Cassie Hutchinson called unhinged, sounds unhinged. Apparently they screamed for six hours. Uh, Eric Hirschman, the lawyer, uh, Trump lawyer, said he screamed for six hours. They were screaming. That's revelation number one. Revelation number two is uh, bits and pieces of information suggesting uh, that the notion that that, that uh, January 6th was going to be an armed insurrection was part of some kind of design that either Trump was aware of or was uh, helping to uh, lead with uh, Steve Bannon's help and the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys and whoever else. Um, no smoking gun or are we getting close to a smoking gun or is there does there need to be a smoking gun or is the sole purpose of this now to pressure Merrick Garland, the Justice Department, to indict Trump for, um, I'm not quite sure, uh, for inciting a riot? Well, at the end of that hearing, uh, Liz Cheney said that the committee had become aware of efforts made by Donald Trump personally to talk to uh, witnesses who had yet to testify with the purpose of uh altering their testimony or dissuading their testimony, which would uh, be criminal, and the Justice Department has been informed. Uh, that's unrelated, obviously, to January 6th, as we understand it. And I'll just present the evidence from what we saw. Um, the committee presented what they had uh, learned was a draft tweet, unsent, but the president has seen, president has seen is affixed to this document. Quote, I will be making a big speech at 10 a.m. on January 6th at the Ellipse, south of the White House, Please arrive early. Massive crowds expected. March to the Capitol after. Stop the steal. Following texts presented to the by the committee to the public from individuals who are activists, you know, on the ground, the Proud Boys types, the Mike Lindell types, you know, the kind of peripheral figures were nevertheless very jazzed about the prospect of violence. Um, one by a gentleman named, or I'm sorry, a person named Kylie Kramer to Mike Lindell. Uh, alerting him to the fact that the president is, quote, going to just call for it, quote, unexpectedly, in scare quotes, meaning a march to the Capitol. Subsequently, Ali Alexander, who's a convicted uh, felon, I believe, and an activist and a very disreputable individual who um, was promoting this wild event that um, Donald Trump had previewed several weeks earlier, saying, quote, tomorrow, ellipse, then U.S. Capitol, Trump is supposed to order us to the Capitol, at the end of the speech, but we'll see. So a lot of people seem to have been aware of some sort of event that was going to unexpectedly occur that the president was going to incite. Um, and the fact that he didn't send this tweet is as opposed saving grace, but it's a thin read to perch yourself on because we now have evidence, written down evidence that there was at least a talk about a uh, in uh, a premeditated effort to, to march on the Capitol, led by the president. But see, I'm unpersuaded by this bit. I, 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 I thought this was sort of the least explosive of the days uh, so far, um, because Trump said, now go to the Capitol once, once he appeared anyway. So we know that was his intention. We know this is what he wanted already. Why does it matter when he was going to decide to give that message uh, or not. Uh, well, it wouldn't matter whether it was this was a spontaneous moment, a riot in which, you know, the the public sort of succumbed to their lizard brain temptation that happens when you're in a crowd or a premeditated assault. 
Okay, but the problem is that saying a march to the Capitol, uh, I was unaware that marching to the Capitol was itself an insurrectionary act. I mean, if that's the case, I, I, I don't like marches. I don't like these kinds of mass political protests. I know that it, they're, they're, they're romanticized uh, in the United States as the only thing that really matters. Uh, I don't like them. But uh, they are a, a, an act of the, the reason that what happened on January 6th happened was the breaching of the Capitol, the use of violence, the weapons, uh, you know, the trespass, the threats. Well, the committee has also established that security threats had been reported to the president, that they were right. aware that there were menacing elements uh, in the, that were going to be in this crowd well ahead I'm of unaware. January 6th. So there are dots. And the question is, do the dots connect in a way that makes him criminally liable? And I'm like you, like Abe, I'm not sure that they do. And I'm not, but I'm not even sure that matters anymore. Criminally liable. How as in like the Brandenburg test incitement? Yeah. I mean, that's a high bar to clear. I know. I don't necessarily. If that's the sole measure of success of this committee's efforts to establish the facts, as we understand them, I don't, I don't think they're going to meet that measure. I also think it's a too high bar clear to high a bar to clear for what they're attempting to do here, which is to establish definitively and for the record that the president intended for this to happen, wanted it to happen and knew it was going to happen. Well, fair enough. And next week, supposedly, we're going to get more insight on what happened on January 6th, not just from the Cassidy Hutchinson, you know, inside the West Wing, but also what happened during those hours and who didn't call whom. I mean, this is one of your key subjects, Noah, right, is that it was, it was Mike Pence who was the one who alerted the military to the need to intervene on, on the Hill in the face of this insurrection and not Trump. About time. Right. Okay. The committee spending so a whole lot of time establishing and establishing again and establishing once more just for good measure that the president knew he hadn't won the election. I think we've established that. That's settled. Okay. Okay. Well, Again, I'm not even sure that's settled. I mean, you cannot say that Trump knows that he lost the election. You can say that 500 people told him he lost the election and that he should have known that he lost the election based on, you know, hard data and hard facts. And the thing that Liz Cheney said yesterday, which is that he had more information about what happened in that election than any other person in America at his fingertips. But that doesn't mean that he believed it. And that could mean that he's crazy. It should mean could mean that he shouldn't ever be president again, which I agree. But it's not establishing that as a fact. You cannot establish what was in somebody's head as a fact. You cannot. You can't. I don't even think but you did can, however, establish that there is no reasonable expectation to believe what you believe. Which leaves only the insanity defense. No, well, I think he believed yeah. he believed the five people who were telling him that he did win it. Well, he yeah. wanted to believe the five people. And, well, that's and, right. And that, that's and that right. means there is no reasonable expectation, no rational expectation, which suggests that sort of the rationale, if we can presume rationality, then he had every reason to believe that he was not being truthful with the public, unless we dispense with the pretense of rationality. Yeah, well, but you are. In my scenario, you're dispensing right. with the pretense of rationality. <laughs> I'm he clean. has a... But I think that's a, appropriate. He a psychologically no, I, I, damaged I, I, person who is unable yeah. to accept the idea that he lost some clinical narcissism and was sociopathy is not crazy. Uh, well, it's irrational. It can be irrational. Anyway, I'm just saying that you can spend all the time you want diagnosing whatever condition he had, but you cannot prove 
that he knowingly and with malice aforethought set a mob to the Capitol with the purposes of a violent effort to get Mike to threaten Mike Pence so that he wouldn't do what he did. What would let's what's a thought experiment here? What would establish that? Very simply that he says, I want that crowd to go down to the Capitol and kick ass and break the break things. I mean, that's what, and where they're close, but this is the part that is going to be very difficult to establish. And it'll be interesting to see what happens here is he had these two conversations with Steve Bannon on the 5th of January, the day before Bannon goes on his, you know, five hour a day Leninist radio, you know, Castorite radio program and says, all hell is going to break loose. What did he mean by that? Did he and Trump have some conversation about all hell breaking loose? Did Trump say, I want all hell to break loose? Let's unleash hell. Like the only person who's going to know that is Bannon. Bannon is now going to testify. Can they get him? I mean, again, it's not like a, it's not a legal proceeding. So he can testify. He can lie. He could say he didn't say it, or he could lie and say he said it. I mean, he could say whatever he wants to say. But the only two people on that call were Trump and Bannon. So if Bannon, for some reason, says, yeah, he ordered the code red, you know, then then there will be the smoking gun. If there's an email, if there's a voicemail, if there's something like that, you need something aside from, you know, in Trump's own hand, out of Trump's mouth as reported by somebody who was on the other side to say, he said this to me. Otherwise, I don't think you get to a proper standard. That having said that, that doesn't mean that this pressure on Merrick Garland couldn't make Merrick Garland cry uncle and go go down the indictment route if, or, you know, can uh, impanel a grand jury or whatever it is that he needs to do to get there because that clearly is the secondary concern here. They want to establish this whole record and and blacken Trump's reputation to the extent they can, if it could be blackened any further, at least with people who might still be on the fence. But then they want to pressure guard. They want the entire world of Democratic voters and 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 to pressure Merrick Garland to go at Trump legally. Am I am I wrong? I'm. I mean, I you know. They are. Benny Thompson practically said that we are now beginning to cooperate with the Justice Department with all of our. Justice Department doesn't know what to do because it hasn't seen all of the transcripts of the depositions. If they were to do something and then the transcripts of the depositions contradict things that are said to their grand jury, for example, then they have an evidentiary crisis, which happens where you have people saying sworn things in two different places. And how do you prove how, if you were actually go to trial, you would have unreliable witnesses in every which direction. And you could not say for for a certainty that they were telling the same story and therefore you have reasonable doubt and therefore you have an acquittal which you don't want to go for if, you know, if that's where you're headed. Anyway, so would you say this was a successful hearing from the January 6th committee's standpoint, or was it not? Or 
are they now just like you know it's like uh, the entire world of of anti-trumpism just wants to say a staggering hearing shocking developments like every every time that anybody says anything it's like i can't believe what i'm here i mean brad parscale accused the president of complicity in a murder it's the president's campaign manager in writing and he is now working with trump <laughs> and he's running a super PAC that is basically part of trump world yeah no i think these texts really matter i think they really matter what the Parscale Katrina Pearson? No, text? Nah, not that. The oh. um, the president saying that there should be a march on the Capitol uh, at a date the uncertain, tweet, but the, un- the, the unsent tweet and the subsequent um, confirmation from the uh, executors of this riot, the shock troops. Mm-hmm. I think it matters. Abe. I mean, I think it matters in getting a clearer picture of things. I just don't think they delivered anything. You know. Um, I think it was a sort of placeholder. <clears throat> Trump's bad. This was bad. Everything he did. I mean, the second part of that hearing during was it, it was bad. I didn't actually watch the second part of it, but it was apparently um, these uh, two gentlemen who were involved in the riots, who uh, are you know on an apology tour now and are are deprogrammed cultists, talking about how they were deeply misled, apologizing for their conduct here embracing capitol hill well, police one, officers one it was, was an emotional moment one was so one Both was the, well, the other one guy yeah, the other one is the other one rounds on msnbc a, right but the other one had been uh, uh had been a spokesman for the oath keepers or something like that and had left their ambit or orbit you know four or five years ago and was talking about yeah, the mindset and how the mindset is violence like that's the purpose is violence. It's not peaceful. They want to be violent. Um, so that's an so indictment that, of that, the Oath Keepers. I mean, you know. Yeah. No, but that's that, so that was his purpose. And the other guy was I was there. It ruined my life. I did everything I did because of what Trump said. What Trump said motivated me personally at every step of the way, including showing up and then going to the Capitol. And he ruined my life. And I now understand that he ruined my life. I've lost my job. I've lost my house. You know, blah blah blah. So it's interesting, and it's it's novelistically, it's a it's a it's a it's a salient point about what happens, the kind of collateral damage that Trump has done to people by his own personal obsession and refusal to accept that you know he didn't win an election. Um, I just don't know that it establishes criminality, but nonetheless, it establishes some kind of, you know, moral evil or moral complicity in horrific personal behavior. But, uh, you know, like that's nothing, (laughs) that's nothing new somehow. And by the way, we say this and we were just talking about, you know, the remarkable achievements of the Trump administration in the Middle East. Uh, you know, with the Abraham Accords and stuff, like nothing is unmixed. Uh, Trump did remarkable work as president, in, in, in particularly there. And yet, you know, what he did on on January 6th was unconscionable and and evil. And and it's very distressing the degree to which uh, people who should know better continue not to know better or continue to root against the fact finding uh, in this in this regard. 
so it was great having Dan Senor on today to talk about his fields of expertise in finance and the Mideast. Uh, programming note, we are going dark tomorrow, Thursday, the 14th, Friday, the 15th of July, and Monday, the 18th of July. We'll be back. The full crew, Noah, Christine, and Abe, and me on the 19th of July. So we're off Thursday, Friday, and Monday. Have a wonderful weekend. Have a wonderful time. Don't think about us. We won't be thinking about you, but we'll be thinking about you again on Tuesday morning. And for Abe, Noah, the absent Christine, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning. <laughs>